You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Peace be with you. I was weak, y'all. It's 11 o'clock, so I know there ain't many people, so I need to say also with you again. Peace be with you, church. There we go. Uh, 11 o'clock's been a strange service the last couple of weeks because, you know, most people come to the 9. I don't know why, but uh, here we are. It feels more like a family Bible study, which I'm I'm for it. I'm about it. Um, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. And thanks for being with us. It's Baptism Sunday. My man Chris about to get dunked. Uh, warning y'all in the splash zone, so you might get a little bit of that Holy Ghost water on you. Not really. I don't know where church you come from. You might get wet. I don't think so. Is it going to be a vigorous baptism or just a gentle one? We'll see. I don't know. We'll see what Michael Miller does. And uh, we had a baptism at the 9 o'clock service. Shelby got baptized. And I was so grateful for this. I'm grateful for you, Chris, and I'm, I'm grateful for the evidence of... Uh, God's mercy and provision. It's been a little bit of a stressful couple of months for anybody. Anybody? Anybody ever wonder what's going to happen? How's this going to work out? And man, I love the baptisms because these are people that got saved during the pandemic. And it's, a, it's evidence that God's going to keep building his church. He's going to keep revealing his love, keep changing people. It's beautiful evidence of life, even when things have not been the way we would hope for. And uh, you know, that, that thought has got, got me kind of wondering, this is a rhetorical question. Don't answer it out loud. Um, unless you want it to be really uncomfortable for all of us for a few minutes. But what do, you, what do you do when your life gets difficult? How do you cope with it? Um, what's your normal response? Maybe think about something difficult that's happened in the last month, two months, when life didn't go your way, when a plan didn't turn out, when things didn't happen the way you thought. What, how do you typically deal with that? Can you imagine a way of dealing with that or facing that that isn't dominated by just wanting it to be over? For me, at least, 
my, uh, my typical pattern is escapism or some form of self-medication. Self-medication can be food. Uh, I, the Lord in his mercies kept me out of the Chinese buffet for a few years, but that was the one for a long time. Um, something to take the edge off immediately. What do you do when life is hard? And can you imagine a way of facing the challenges of your life in a way that isn't dominated by just wanting it to stop? Throughout our series on Philippians, which we've been in for several weeks now, we've talked about this word joy, uh, which we're defining as delight in the beauty of God that produces patient hope. So in, it's, in essence, it's finding God so desirable, so satisfying, that we are patiently enduring our circumstances, filled with hope. And I'm, I'm curious, in whatever situation maybe you're thinking of right now, is your God big enough that he could be present even in the midst of those circumstances of suffering? That he could maybe be doing something, trying to reveal something or, or change you somehow, even when life isn't the way you think it should be? And I'll tell you, uh, the text that Kristen just read so well for us, and really the scripture as a whole, very rarely will offer you an out from your circumstances. Or to say, like, I don't like this, and here are the three, three steps to do to get out of it. The scriptures will just very rarely tell you this is how to get out of your difficult circumstances. What they, what they will tell you is a way of being, a kind of person you can be, where joy can carry you through your circumstances. And so, you know, if you come to the Bible looking for, you know, the rules to get out of a hard situation, you probably, you probably won't find that, which can make it a, a bit confusing at times. Uh, Philippians was written by one of the apostles, a man named Paul, who was smarter than any of us. Uh, he probably had the whole Bible memorized. He knew a whole bunch of languages. And sometimes smart people can be confusing. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes smart people can be a little bit complicated. And so sometimes if you're confused with Paul, I read the Bible for a living more or less, so here's a pro tip from a professional. That's redundant because a pro tip is a professional tip. Here's a tip. Uh, if you're ever confused reading things that Paul has written, start at the end and read the passage backwards. Usually at the end of a section, he'll say real clearly what he's trying to say, the main point of what he's doing in all the verses before that. And that's the case for us here. So in, in verse 21... This is everything that he's trying to say in the verses that were read for us just now. So verse 21 says, Jesus will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So, so here's the lesson of these verses. The Christian can make it through because you will be made new. So what do you do in, in circumstances of trial, of suffering? You can make it through when you know you will be made new. And now, I will say that um, knowing that truth or confessing that truth is helpful, but it's not enough for today. There is a way of embodying and practicing future truths that will produce present power. And you know this in, in all kinds of ways. I heard, is it true someone's engaged? Someone's going through premarital counseling? One of my college folks? Yeah. So listen, you're not married yet, right? We can do this because it's small enough and everyone can stare at you, make you a little uncomfortable. You're not married yet, but you will be married. And your awareness of that future wedding date changes the way you guys relate to each other now. It changes the way you interact with all other relationships. It changes the way you deal with your finances, even though it's not a present reality. 
So we do this in all, all kinds of ways. You know when the school is going to start. And so what you're doing now is influenced by knowing that date that's coming. Future truths produce present power so long as we learn to embody them. And what I mean by embody is we live these truths. We live in light of these truths. So again, in verse 21, we get some of the truths, the the objective realities that we're called to hold on to. So for instance, Jesus will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. He's, he's speaking of our resurrection from the dead. Resurrection is one of the key themes of, of this passage. Weakness means a whole lot of stuff. If you're in your 30s or you've made it out of your 30s, you don't need any more explanation about what weakness in your body means. Things hurt that didn't used to hurt. You gain weight in places you didn't used to gain weight. You, you know, a while ago, someone was like, I love the new look. And I'm like, this is not a new look. This is age, right? Like, I didn't just say, like, I'm going to look, whatever, like the transporter and shave my head. It's like I'm going bald and I look ridiculous, right? Like, you will, weakness means all kinds of things. But in this context, what he's primarily talking about, the weakness he's talking about, is our eventual death. How will our bodies be like Christ's? They will be raised. How will Jesus raise us from the dead, Paul says, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So the same power he used to create a whole universe, the same power Paul will tell us in Colossians that Jesus uses to hold all things together at all times, that same power will come to bear in your life. He will raise you into a new glorious body. And I'm, I'm guessing some of you need to, to hear that in heaven, in your eternal state, you won't be a spirit floating on a cloud, strumming a harp. You will have a body, you will work, you will live in a real place. It will be like this in some real key ways and not like this in ways I don't totally understand. But you will have a new body, free from every manner of weakness. All will be well, including your beautiful, glorious body. Now that's a truth to build a life on. I will have a body free from weakness that will exist in eternity with Christ. That's, that's, that's a big truth. But as in, the, in the preaching business, we would say, but that doesn't necessarily sizzle in the pan. You know, that's, a, that's something that is, is kind of an out there truth. You know what I mean? It's why being engaged can be hard because the commitment is there, but we're not there yet. And anybody who's married will tell you being married is way better than being engaged. And that's way better than dating, which let the reader understand. We'll go talk about that at some, I don't know, in a marriage series or something like that. Uh, it's a future truth to experience present power in light of that truth. We have, we have to learn how to embody and practice this truth. Christianity was never intended just to be a mental exercise. It was supposed to show up in the way we live. And so Paul concludes this section with that big truth. You will be raised. You will have a perfect body. And what what comes before that, what precedes verse 21, are all of these ways we can embody and practice this divine truth. So in verse 12, this is where he starts. I think it's a great place for all of us to start. He says, I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. So again, that perfection there is referring to his resurrected body. And that's not to say you'll be perfect in everything that you do when you're resurrected. In the sense of like, I, I don't know, when you, when you are resurrected, that doesn't mean you'll be able to play piano and sing like Ryan Marsh or play the drums and sing at the same time. I don't even know how that's possible. You won't be able to play guitar like Justin Schaefer or you won't suddenly be able to paint like Bob Ross or I, I don't know, 
build beautiful landscaping like Phil Schaefer. There's too much talent in the Schaefer family. I'm just going to say that. There's a, there's a, a disproportionate amount of favor over there. My, my point is, when you're resurrected, Phil is the guy who made all of that playground area beautiful, if you're curious. Um, this is what you get when you're at family church now. The point is, perfection here, the resurrection body, isn't to, isn't to say you will be perfect at everything that somebody could do. It's more the idea of wholeness and completion. You will be all that you were made to be. And some of y'all feel, feel the gap. You know, did, again, don't, this is rhetorical unless you want to have awkward conversations. Did you do anything this week that you knew beforehand you shouldn't do? Did you think anything? Did you say something? Did you take an action that leading up to that you knew you shouldn't do? Yes. All of you should have said yes in your spirit, right? Not out loud. You did that thing knowing you shouldn't have done it. And then you felt bad about doing it. And then you probably afterwards had some desire to not do that again or a longing to maybe. So you see the gap there between who you are and who you will be. At your resurrection, you will be whole and you will be perfect. Your, your truest you in Christ, who God made you to be. That's the idea here. You will be whole. But do you see how Paul acknowledges that he's a work in progress? He acknowledges the gap. Even though he's an apostle, even though Christ appeared to him, even though he was the greatest church planter of all time, he's saying, I'm not there yet. I, can you see the combination of humility and self-awareness? It's not um, self-depreciation, depreci- self-deprecation, right? He's not like making fun of himself. There's a soberness, a humility that he's not who he is going to be. Knowing that he will be made perfect, empowers him to be honest today, which is just like a side note to think about, maybe on an afternoon walk. Who are you honest with in your life now? Who could you tell about that gap you experienced this week that wouldn't be surprised? So that's a real simple way you practice your future resurrection by being honest with people close to you about ways you fall short now. And that's not to beat yourself up. That's humility and self-awareness. You are a work in progress. Again, Paul's awareness that he will be made whole empowers him to be honest today. But that doesn't spiral him into navel-gazing and defeatism. Look at what he says in verse 12. Where are we? He says, But I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Knowing he's a work in progress, knowing he will be made whole, he presses on. He's not defeated or resigned to brokenness. This is, I, this, I think this is really funny. And these, this whole middle chunk of this passage, he's using athletic terms. He's using sports terms because the Philippians were obsessed with sports. It was a big Greek and Roman thing. And there was some tension in the church. Jews didn't think we should do any, have anything to do with sports because they had pagan origins. A lot of the major sports competitions were funded by pagans. It was like, you can't go to an NFL game because this group of people funds that NFL game. And Paul was like, listen, man, it's a perfect analogy. He takes something and, and uses it to speak to them in a way that they would understand. So he's basically saying, you know those athletes you love? Train in following Christ the way you watch those athletes train for their competitions. He's encouraging them towards focused, strenuous effort. 
Sometimes, in churches like ours at Sojourn, Sojourn tends to lean pretty heavily on the gospel of God's grace, which is, it's a true announcement. You are made safe with God, not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because God freely gives it to you at Christ's expense. How are you saved? Because God loves you, he desired you, he chose you, and Christ's blood was shed for you. That's the gospel of, of grace. Sometimes, if we have an exaggerated emphasis on that, we lose sight of the call to strenuous, focused effort in our becoming more like Jesus. We think being saved by grace means being saved to a life of ease, a life of relaxation. But verse 15 is incredible. Look what he says. He says, let all who are mature, spiritually mature, agree on these things. That is, uh, that we are to run the race, that we are to press on with endurance, that we are to focused, strenuous effort. The mature people respond to the gospel of grace by running harder. We know Jesus will make us perfect. We know that he is the author and finisher, the author and, and completer of our faith. We know that he will carry us on to the end. And that safety, that confidence, that freedom moves the mature to work harder. The mature never simply assume that the race is over and shrug their shoulders. It's not a sign of Christian maturity to be like, well, God's in control. I don't know. I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. That's not the call of Christ. Another way to think about it, churches like like ours, like Sojourn and, and many like us, we tend to focus overly on confession. And what I mean is uh, profession may be a clearer way to say it. If you say the right things about Jesus, you're good. And so when we think of evangelism, we think about, I'm going to say these things to you and get you to agree with these truth statements. And listen, truth is important in Christianity. We want you to say true things. But a confession church is often a church where little transformation happens. I would say Sojourn has great doctrine, but how many of us uh, are nervous, are anxious, are scared? We haven't experienced victory over these besetting sins, or as my therapist once told me, he cussed at me. I'm not going to cuss in front of you. I paid $150 an hour for a therapist to cuss at me. And he said, you Sojourn guys are so full of it. And, but he didn't say it. You see what I'm saying? And I was like, excuse me, sir? And he's like, oh, God's so sovereign, and he's so in control, and you guys keep coming in here anxious, guilty, and you can't sleep at night. You see the disconnect? We, we preach, we confess, profess a gospel of grace, and we feel guilty and unloved and insecure. Christianity was meant to transform us in our lives, in our, in our very conduct, the core of who we are. Look closely what Paul says next. In verse 18, he says, there are many who say that word. Somebody say it. You muttered it. Conduct. There are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice it doesn't say their confession shows their... This isn't a theological problem in the sense of what they're articulating. They're, they must appear to be Christians. It says their conduct reveals they really are enemies of the cross, even though they're presenting like they're not. They are saying the right things, but is the way they live is betraying them. It's revealing who they... Yes, we are saved by grace, we're not moving on from that message or saying that doesn't count anymore. Well, what I'm trying to help you see is that the fruit of our salvation by grace, the evidence of our salvation is in our lives and our conduct. How do the enemies of the cross live? Verse 19, their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think about this life here on earth. That's the simplest way to 
define the enemies, the people who are living in that kind of disconnect. They only think about this life here on earth. They only think about this life here on earth. So if you go back to that original question, what do you do when life is hard? The most, the surefire way to waste your suffering, to waste any pain in your life or to stay trapped in it, the, the simplest, clearest way to suffer poorly is to focus on making the pain stop. For that to be your goal in your circumstances. Focus only on getting what you want. Cling to your plans and demand you get your way. Pursue comfort at all costs. Fill your bellies. Boast about your life now. Just know that pursuing comfort is rarely pursuing Christ. Be very careful in assuming that your plans are God's plans. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it's the will of God. We don't do hard things to prove they're hard, to prove we're Christians. But at the same time, you have to know that when something is uncomfortable, don't be surprised or don't automatically assume something has gone wrong. I'll let you in on a big secret that is clear throughout the scriptures, and all of you know this already. Life is hard for most of us most of the time. And, you know, like the last service, it was kind of uncomfortable how many people were here. It was basically as full as we can get right now. And I was just thinking about if we, could, if we could get the stories from the last month of everyone's life in that room, how overwhelmed we would be with the anxiety, the uncertainty, the decisions, the unknowns. Life is hard for most of us most of the time, but the mature in Christ know they will get through because they will be made new. The mature in Christ don't focus on ending the pain. They focus on running towards Christ in the midst of it. And let me try to give you a very, a very simple picture of what this looks like. So um, my wife and I are renovating a house right around the corner from here, and we wanted to strike while the iron is hot. So we've been, we were hustling all through May and June to get our house ready to sell. We didn't want to be in our house with people doing showings and inspections and all that kind of stuff. So we went down to Florida, to my parents' house in Florida, to let, you know, just let people do whatever they want to do with our house, and hopefully it would sell. So on, around the July 4th week, uh, we decided to go on a nice family walk. And in the panhandle of Florida, it's like every neighborhood is just beautiful. And so we went to this neighborhood called Watercolor. It's not really a neighborhood. It's, I, don't, I don't know who can actually live there because of what everything costs. So we drive in there and like, like to walk around for a few hours pretending we belong there. It's all like scraggly old oak trees, covered bridges, lily pad ponds. You see egrets and blue herons and like all these amazing creatures. So we were going to have this majestic beautiful family walk through the oak trees and the wonder and all that. Like, and in some ways it was that. It was super beautiful. But here's a couple of mistakes that we made. One, we left my parents' house around 11, which meant we got there like around 1130 or noon, which meant it was like 95 degrees outside. Uh, two, um, we decided it'd be a good time to practice bike riding. And so my kids, my six-year-old and five-year-old were on their bikes with training wheels. And then I had our stroller which is like a city stroller. It's a bougie city mini stroller. And the path that we had picked uh, was going to be, again, beautiful and through the trees. What we didn't factor in is that there were hills and that the pathway was pebbles and sand. And, and so listen, if you're like, I don't see the problem, go get on some training wheels in the sand and watch what happens. Um, 
push a stroller in rocks and sand in 95-degree heat. So let me paint you a mental picture. About 30 minutes in, I don't know how long it was. I got into a heat blur. It was long enough that my, I had a sweat ring down to here. I, my shirt was sweat stuck to me. That's where you, is this sweat or is this vacation? Because nothing fits anymore. Two sizes too small. My, my baby, my 18-month-old in the stroller, doesn't have, she's in the diaper, sprawled out like this. His lips were sweating, right? He's not moving. His lips were sweating. Uh, my daughter is getting stuck in the sand every 15 seconds. And it's like the training wheels keep the back wheel up. And so, you know, they don't have, it's not a land cruiser, right? It's the bike and it gets in there and it's a frozen bike. So it doesn't have any tread on it. And so she's just spinning sand. And I look over at, at one point and my, my daughter is sitting there pedaling like it's a stationary bike. And she's just saying, want go home, want go home. The bike ride robbed her of complete sentences, right? She's saying, want go home. My, she's five, she can actually talk but she's just saying, want to go home. My son abandoned the bike ride altogether, and he's walking his bike, and he's just saying, so terrible. This is so terrible. So our family is a mixture of tears and sweat, and I am muttering under my breath, angry, saying, this was a huge mistake. And so that goes on for like 10 or 15 minutes, right? We're just like fussing and sweating and fighting and griping, and it's miserable. And my wife calls a family meeting. So we get under the scraggly oak trees, and my wife, Allison, kind of huddles us up, and she says, she says, listen, today we get to learn what perseverance means. We cannot stop here just because it's hard. We have to press on. And I'll be honest, everybody but my wife and my family is a little bit soft, and so we... You know what I mean by that? We don't have much grit. If it gets sweaty or hard, we, we want to stop. But my wife says, press on, let's go. And so she gave us this lesson on, on perseverance. We had options. We could cling to our original plan there of having this nice family walk. I could have pulled the family together and said, we're having a nice family walk. We could, we could have sat down and reminded one another about how wonderful air conditioning is. We could have talked about a history of air conditioning, who invented air conditioning, how powerful the air conditioning at my parents' house is. Um, we could have sat down and waited to die of heat, stroke, and sweat. <laughs> like, those are just the options that were before us. Or, or we could press forward through the sweat, pain, and frustration and go home. It, it wasn't what we wanted. It wasn't what we planned or you know, what we had expected. But think about it. If, if I had forced our plans and said, this was my idea and this will happen, it would have only compounded the misery of everyone around me. If we just sat around and talked about air conditioning, it would not have reduced our sweat or frustration. And we all agreed we didn't want to die in the woods of watercolor Florida. So my point in saying this is we had to marry the truth of our situation with actions. Here were the, some truths of that situation. Truth number one, air conditioning exists. It's a real thing. Truth number two, we have a home where we're allowed to be that has air conditioning in it. And truth number three, mom and dad know how to get to that house. None of those truths would have mattered without my wife's lesson, it's time to persevere. None of those truths would have mattered if they didn't show up in our actions. We must press on. We were able to press on because we knew we had somewhere to go. We knew the home where we were going was beautiful, that it had showers, that it had water, that it had ice cream, and that hope compelled us to press on through the pain of our circumstances. So we began pedaling. We focused on the next turn. We focused on the next hill. I carried my daughter on my shoulders for a while. 
My wife pushed my son and his bike for a while. It wasn't fun. But in a short while, we were finally back home. So here's some truth for everyone in Christ that we see in this passage. Truth number one, Christ is returning. Truth number two, you'll be raised and you will be made whole. And truth number three is we are not there yet. Life is hard for everyone, but these are truths to build our life upon. What will you do knowing that you will be made new? Our situations are too complex. Even, you know, in a small group like this, I can't, we can't just like spell it out for everybody or look at everybody's situations. But I learned so much from that bike ride that I think fits right here in this passage. So here, here's one of the first truths that, that I'm wrestling with, to be honest. Um, we must be a people who refuse to be idle in our pursuit of Christ. We are focused on that day when we will be made like him and we make it our aim now to live like him. We rehearse our resurrection by imitating the life of Christ. If that sounds too vague for you, which I get that's a little bit vague, start reading the Gospel of Matthew. As a church, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. There's a year's worth of sermons you can go listen to on the Sojourn Collective app. They're all free. We'll pick back up in the Gospel of Matthew in the fall. Um, and just read about the life of Jesus. And if something challenges you, if something sticks out to you, say, I'm going to try to act. I'm going to try to act like Jesus there. Maybe read it, asking yourself, how is God inviting me to be like Christ here? My point is, we must be a people who refuse to be idle in our pursuit of Christ. Being transformed does not just happen. It is a participatory relationship. We have a part to play in it. Second, the second truth we must pursue Christ in the ordinary places of our lives. This, to me, seems to be a huge problem in our culture right now. So here's some of what I mean. Don't spend your time coming up with schemes how to fix world economic systems when you don't have a family budget in place. You know, you know what I'm saying? Don't, don't spend your time thinking through how to clean up America's major cities when your house is dirty. There's a way, there's a tendency in us to focus on these huge, big-picture problems in the world as a, as a very clever way of avoiding the problems in our own life. Whereas Jesus would say, don't point the speck out in somebody else's eye when you have a log in your own eye. So where's the smallest place in your life that you could begin imitating Christ? And I'll, like, if you've been here for a while, some of you know I lost a bunch of weight a couple of years ago. Quarantine has made me insecure about putting some of it back on, but we're, we're going to keep chipping away at it. And I will tell you, uh, no one who's lost a bunch of weight woke up one day and said, you know what, today's the day I lose the weight. It's a, it's a process that comes about through daily acts of discipline and faithfulness. It's the same way. You can't wake up and say, today's the day I become like Jesus. You have to make small, deliberate, daily decisions. I tell, I get to meet with young people quite often, and one thing I'll say to them is, like, hey, listen, you're 25 now. Here are the two big options for your life. You will wake up and be 35, or the Lord will take you home before then. In the next 10 years, you will either die or you will become 10 years older. And so you have some, some say in who you will be over the next 10 years. Who do you want to be 10 years from now? You're not just going to wake up and be that person. You got to make these decisions, small decisions every day that will change you over time. So, where, 
What is the smallest area of your life that's disordered right now? What can you look at in your life and say, honestly, this is not the way of Christ? And it could be something really, really small. Do you show up to work on time? Do you clock out on time? Ask your coworkers, what's it like to work with me? And listen to them. And if you're, I was thinking about this in the first service. If all of your coworkers think you're unreliable and mean, they will not listen to anything you have to say about eternal salvation. Jesus says, if you're responsible and faithful with the small things, then you'll be faithful and responsible with the bigger things. So what is the smallest area in your life that you can begin pursuing Christ right now? Do the job you hate is under the Lord. Fight to listen more. Maybe start giving some of your money away. If you knew you would be made new, what's a small area of your life you would change today? And finally, start at the end. You have to have a clear picture of what's waiting for you, uh, of you being raised, of you being made perfect, of you being in a place free from weakness. Do you want to taste now the power of the age to come? Press on and don't give up. Do you want to be a person of resurrection confidence? Knowing your story ends in glory with Christ. Press on. Don't give up. If you want those future truths to feel more real today, put your faith into action. Maybe the simplest way to put it is if you trusted God perfectly and knew that he would carry you, if you had perfect faith, what would you do? And I'm guessing some of you, your answer to that would be pretty simple. I would call my sister. I would apply for that job. I would, if you trusted God perfectly, what would you do? And maybe that's his invitation to you this morning. One day, all of our sufferings will be a footnote in the grand story of grace. We will look back on our trials like my family looks back on that bike ride. It was disappointing, it was difficult, but it was filled with grace. It wasn't simply painful, it was transforming. So hear me, Christian, you can make it through when you know you'll be made new. And so we come to practice our resurrection every Sunday, fundamentally by remembering what Christ has done for us. And and just please note, Christ did not give us just words to memorize. He gave us a meal to share in. And so we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it, and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you eat in remembrance of me. What is this saying? This is the gospel of grace. You are saved because the body of Christ was given for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. And if you were perfectly safe and perfectly loved, what would you do? And if your response is, I would take the next 30 years off and not do anything, you have not understood the gospel of grace. So we we come to celebrate now. So I invite you, uh, you should have received a little cup when you walked in, still doing this old school. This is kind of like a Methodist vibe, I think. Um, the little cups. I don't particularly like these, but I like this better than coronavirus. Amen. Who wants, who needs that in their life right now? Uh, So I invite you to open it up, take this little wafer here and feel the symbolism of it. Feel the weight of it. This is something you can touch, you can taste, that you chew, and it becomes part of who you are. So take this little wafer and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Take and eat. Open up the juice. And remember, this is what makes you safe with God. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Take, drink, and remember you're safe with God. So the pattern of our church services, 
the pattern of the gospel. God initiates and we respond. Communion, we remember God has initiated to secure our salvation, so now we respond. You can respond by giving. We'll be giving buckets on the way out. Uh, respond by singing, and we will respond in just a few moments by celebrating baptism. I'll pray for us, and then you can stand and join us as we sing. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.